before we get to today's episode, I want to share with you a podcast I found recently that I'm really enjoying. Shelter in Place is a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart. It's hosted by Laura Joyce Davis, a Fulbright scholar and award-winning fiction writer whose life with three young kids in California was turned upside down by the pandemic. With a musician's ear, a writer's pen, and a voice that invites you in. Laura examines life's timely events and timeless questions. She invites guests of a wide range of politics and experience to come together around shared values and imagine a better way forward. Through open-hearted memoir and authentic conversations, season two follows the Davis family on a pandemic odyssey across a divided nation, seeking not just safety, but a place that everyone can call home. Subscribe to Shelter in Place wherever you get your podcasts or at shelterinplacepodcast.info. I want to tell you about something new that we're trying. All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. So we created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to your friends, family, or anyone else you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. It's a two-step process. First, follow the link in our show notes to get your personal referral link, which you can then send around. Once you share our show with five friends who then download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a future hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded Future Hindsight Moleskin Notebook. Yep, a real Moleskin Notebook with our logo on it. Thank you for spreading the word and thank you for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Ted Dintersmith. He's the author of What School Could Be and is on a mission to help equip our children with skill sets and mindsets that are essential to a world of innovation. In our last episode, we spoke to Leon Botstein about the necessity of delivering high quality education for our civic life and for our economy. This time, we'll be discussing what high school innovation might in fact look like and why the opportunity to reform secondary education is now. A lot can happen locally without anything federally. And so I would say to schools listening, do not wait for the Secretary of Education or the State Commissioner of Education to give you permission to do what you need to do. You have a great opportunity right now to do the most amazing things. Nobody's looking over your shoulder. The state mandated exams, they're meaningless now. The curriculum police are off the job. Even colleges are dumping the SAT and ACT, which I think is healthy. There are great circumstances in place right now for schools to be bold about what they do. We discuss how to set the conditions for great learning and to unleash the full potential of all our students. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So, Ted, what is your vision of what school could be? Well, and this will be at a little bit more abstract level because they all are different. And I think it's actually a strength when every school is different 
in ways that match what that community wants and what the kids are in need of. And But those elements were when kids were trusted to have a voice in their learning so that they're tapping their intrinsic motivation, when the learning has a connection to the real world, that's really important, transformational. When student work, teacher effectiveness are assessed with meaningful assessments instead of bubble tests. And I think it's really important, particularly these days, for kids to feel part of a caring and connected community. So we really push for, support, encourage people to do what we see in the field works and in a way that they feel is the right way to do it. And it's really is the antithesis of standardized, you know, grind through it education. So when you wrote your book, what were your favorite kinds of innovation that you found most exciting in terms of bringing about most excitement in the children and in wanting to learn? I went to all 50 states in the school year, and I intentionally picked a great example from each state. So it's this mosaic of really great things that go from, you know, kindergarten kids in Indiana designing robots to you know, third, fourth, and fifth graders in West Virginia, staffing the technology support desk to eighth graders in Fargo, making documentaries about local buildings. The kids had a voice in what they wanted to do, and they see that it's valuable. They see it's going to contribute to their community in some important way, which ultimately is how kids derive a sense of purpose in their actions and in their developing skills. One of the common elements was when I talked to teachers and said, wow, this is so interesting. Where did the idea come from? It's something they had come up with, and they had this deep sense of pride that this was going to really work for their kids. And then they'd work long hours to kind of make it succeed. But they also had somebody in their school. Generally, if it was a classroom teacher, it was a principal. But somebody had their back. Somebody sort of said, I give you permission to innovate. These teachers are incredible. If you trust them, support them, give them a little bit of encouragement to do what they entered the profession to do, which is to engage and inspire their students, boy, they'll run with it. And I think there's magic in that. And and I think that's what we've lost sight of for who knows how long, decades in, in American education, where we've said, no, 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 the most important thing to get from our schools is not happy students with important skills. The most important thing to get from our schools is data. And once you say data matters more than children, you've gone off the tracks. Well, Now that we are in COVID times and school has transformed in the way that we experience it in real time, what have you discovered in the last seven months of teacher innovation in the face of remote learning and putting children first? It's an incredibly challenging time for our educators. When I circle back to the schools that I feature in my book, we're A lot of the emphasis was on equipping kids with the skills so that they could identify on their own what they wanted to learn. Well, that was really an important skill and capability before the pandemic. Arguably, it's the only thing that works today. And so the feedback I've gotten from them is, yeah, kids miss their school, kids miss their activities, but there's been no diminution in learning. Our kids are still learning. Once you say, I care a lot about whether my kids are learning, I care about that a lot more than what they're learning. All sorts of great things happen. But in many, many cases, they've said, we've got to keep making sure kids are learning exactly what some state-mandated curriculum says. And then you try to port that onto Zoom. And I think that's where you get the fatigue and frustration and people throwing up their hands and saying, this will be a lost year. And arguably, it didn't work that well in person, and it doesn't work at all virtually. 
And so I think that gap between trusting, empowering, equipping kids to learn things they care about, they want to learn, versus trying virtually to make them keep learning stuff they really don't have much interest in, it's night and day. Can you give us an example of an innovative practice that you've seen developed this spring or in the summer that you're like, yes, this is the kind of thing that you can actually still do on Zoom and children are still learning? Well, I think one common denominator about the pandemic is that the number of community challenges is vast. So if you're looking for the ability to sort of unleash students with guidance and inspiration from teachers to solve community problems, there are a lot of them today. And those problems are pressing. One of the things that's, that I think is mind-blowing is that the best site for getting data on COVID has been for months this site done by a 17-year-old in Washington State. And when you read his profile, he was not an academic superstar. But when this happened, he said, hey, I can make a difference. He develops this site. And it's like the go-to site right up there with you know Johns Hopkins sites and the CDC sites. And it's a creative invitation to kids. Like, what's something you could do to help your community get through this and invite them to be creative and bold in the way they go about it? Think back to when you were in school. What experiences stick with you? What experiences got you excited about learning? What experiences gave you a sense you could make a difference with your talents? It's never a lecture-based course where I got a 97 on the exam. We don't give any priority in schools to helping kids find a sense of purpose through their schoolwork and their learning. But man, you know, you give a kid a sense of purpose, they're going to run with things in their life. These kids, they have great values. They want to help. They want to make a difference. Why don't we give them at least some amount of time during school to come up with a bold initiative and make it happen? You need to produce something you're proud of that makes a difference. That's the ultimate way to hold kids to a standard. So I think the obvious question here is that not everybody has equal access to these kinds of schools and these kinds of opportunities. And let's say you live in a rural area, you don't have access to broadband, or you're poor and you don't have access to broadband. How do you think schools can encourage this kind of curriculum in the absence of full buy-in, just because the access is not fully available to everybody? What I find is that when you talk about this more challenge-based form of learning, where the kids look at it and they're invited to be creative and bold, where they know they're going to have to stare down failure, where they're rewarded for taking an unconventional approach, you take these kids that we often describe as being not proficient, not gifted. Our solution has been just pile up worksheets. And somehow, if five pounds of worksheets a day didn't do it, 10 pounds will. You give those kids an open-ended challenge requiring different ways to think about things over and over again. Teachers, parents, they tell me, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe how they sprung into life. You wouldn't believe what they suddenly started doing. And so I, I sort of put this question back, particularly to policymakers. Isn't it interesting that we could better prepare our kids for life and actually make enormous progress on what I call the accomplishment gap? Because those kids that are in the schools that don't have enough resources, the kids desperately trying to overcome challenges at home to escape poverty, man, I'll tell you, they have a lot in them that we're just ignoring. So... In a way, I feel like this pandemic is giving us this opportunity to break the box open. If you were Secretary of Education, 
what is the first thing that you would do to make this kind of shift possible to basically change the paradigm about education and having the opportunity for all children to be their best selves as adults? Yeah. Well, one of the powers and beauties of school is a lot can happen locally without anything federally. And so I would say to schools listening, do not wait for the secretary of education or the state commissioner of education to give you permission to do what you need to do. You have a great opportunity right now to do the most amazing things. Nobody's looking over your shoulder. The state mandated exams, they're meaningless now. The curriculum police are off the job. Even colleges are dumping the SAT and ACT, which I think is healthy. There are great circumstances in place right now for schools to be bold about what they do. And so I would look at what New Hampshire did from 2009 to 2016. They completely rethought their assessments and went from bubble test type of stuff to performance-based and competency-based. They trusted teachers. They said, you take the lead in developing a new accountability framework. We're going to trust you, but also subject to checks and balances. And the teachers I interviewed there said it was a lot of work, but it meant something to us because we felt this made sense. I think that's the opportunity in any of these leadership roles is to start saying, let's focus on what we need to do to set the conditions that lead to great learning instead of micromanage every step of the day because some committee says this is what you've got to learn. In a world of no child left behind, it's actually a world where almost every child is left behind. And we could do so much better. And I think leadership in the Department of Education would come in the form of really going after the states to level the playing field with the way they allocate funding to schools. It's just heartbreaking to see the kids who need the most support get the least and vice versa. Encouraging, supporting, working with schools and districts and states to come up with more authentic assessments. Start laying out better guidelines. Start showcasing what's working. Honestly, we've just gone through this long entire process with lots of people running for president and everything else. I mean, did anybody deliver an exciting vision of what communities, kids, the nation could be with a reimagined vision of what education's all about. Yeah, nobody. And, and we need to do that. And we can. I think we should be pursuing the big ideas. We should be talking about the big ideas. And nobody really is. There's a lot of talk about returning to the old status quo, which in truth, we both know will never return. Like whatever happened in 2018, 2016, 2014, it's not coming back. The pandemic is changing our lives forever. And also the Trump presidency has changed our lives forever. You know, uh, both those things together. This is our last episode of this season and the final episode of 2020, which also means this is the last Jordan Harbinger ad of the year. We want to thank Jordan, Jen, and his fantastic team for supporting Future Hindsight for most of this year. If you've been waiting for a sign to check out a new podcast before the year is over, this is it. Jordan's show has a lot of similarities with Future Hindsight. We both feature interviews with some of the best and brightest in our society today, and we both want you to use the information you learn on our shows to make informed decisions about the world. The difference is that Jordan has been around a little longer than we have, and he comes out with three or four episodes a week. If you need more great podcast content this holiday season, you know where to look. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. So as an everyday citizen, as an everyday parent, what are two things I could be doing in order to demand this kind of transformative education? How can we approach this at the school level, in our own communities and say, you know what, I want this kind of education for my children that really helps them be well prepared for life? Well, let me start with the parent and move up. With parents, you have your choices, right? I mean, you, you can push your kid like nobody's business to do well in the defined model. And they might get into a slightly better college and that might lead to a slightly better job. But I actually argue that college is less and less relevant to the interesting jobs going forward. And that pushing your kid to do better on something they don't wanna do, that they don't see the meaning of, is quite possibly corroding their long-term mental health, their self-esteem, their sense of purpose, and could leave you with a very broken relationship with your kid. I'd say to any parent, think long and hard because you help a kid find what they're interested in, let them get really good at learning how to learn. You will have a happier kid. And more and more often, kids can create their own career path without having to go to college. And that makes people nervous when I say that, particularly you know, in well-off communities where they're all obsessed about college. But I promise, if kids can't wait to get to school each day, if their mind's racing all day, you know, they may have missed some spots of content here and there. But what they did take on, they learned and retained. And so their test scores don't drop. On the higher level, I think there's enormous leverage, you know, like school boards. Oftentimes it's a stepping stone position. It's a lot of work. But I think we need to pay a lot more attention to who's being elected to these school boards or appointed and making sure their views align with a more forward-looking view of what education could be. So far, nobody has. So it could be just a terrible idea. But I, I will fund anybody who comes to me and says, I'm going to mount a statewide campaign that insists that the state legislators on our state education committee or committees take the exams that we administer to high school kids that keep them from graduating and publish their scores. And I promise you this, there's not one state legislature in your state that would pass the math exam. And yet, so many kids don't get a high school diploma because of math. It's the kids desperately trying to get out of poverty and they don't get a high school degree because they can't solve simultaneous equations. If you keep a kid from getting a high school degree, particularly a kid growing up in really challenging circumstances, we know how that plays out. That kid is almost certainly going to live a lifetime of poverty, homelessness, jail. I mean, it is not a pretty picture. And if we keep them from getting a high school degree, it should be something important. You know, if, if they said financial literacy, I'd say, oh, I can see that. Being able to communicate. Yeah, I can see that. Being an informed citizen who can fact check. Yes, I can absolutely see that. You know, like give some thought to what is a gate for people moving forward in life. And honestly, I think we need to put this as our highest priority. Because if we don't get schools right, if we don't get education right, it, you know, it goes back to Thomas Jefferson. A democracy rises or falls on the basis of its education. If we keep turning people out of school with no career skills, with no citizenship capability, kids that go 16 years to school and have racked up 100k or more student loan debt, and they, they end up working in some minimum wage job. If that's what keeps happening, we won't have a democracy. I feel like there needs to be more of an embrace broadly of whether you have kids in school or not, to just say, you know what, 
this is actually a big reason why we have the mess on our hands right now in our democracy. We could do so much more in high school if we just rethought what we're doing. And, and if you leave high school with a lane, with a mission, with some pragmatic skills that matter, with a sense that you can contribute to your community, those people are not going to be throwing hand grenades into the ballot box. They're not going to say, my life is so terrible, I don't mind having somebody in the White House who makes everybody else's life terrible. And I actually think that's a big driver for what we've been going through. Yeah, I agree 100%. We want all of these things to be true for our kids, that they are going to be well-educated about civics, about democracy, that they can do basic financial planning, that they don't necessarily have to do algebra. But I think there's also something to be said about having some sort of standard. When somebody graduates from high school, you know what kind of level of math they have. You understand what they're capable of doing, more or less. And I think this is something that people do want, that an employer does want to know what is the capacity for learning for this person and where is the right place for this person in my company? And I think that's a fair question. I think it's a, a very fair question. So let's talk a little bit about what constitutes a standard and let's follow the flow of science. What I find is when I interview students in high school, particularly taking AP courses, and I say, what'd you learn in AP chemistry? The answer is I learned I never want to be a chemist. And when I look for evidence two, three months later that students have retained what they studied, there's generally either no evidence, nobody wants to check. But when there is evidence, it's discouraging. I tell the story about Lawrenceville Academy, super expensive private boarding school in New Jersey, where they retested students in the fall on the finals they took in June. And they stripped out low-level things, so they were intending to retest them just on the high-level concepts. They were sure almost all, all of their students had mastered. And the average grade went from a B-plus to an F, and not one student in two years in lots of these courses retained everything they thought that most or all of them had retained. So if you have a standard, but it isn't sticking, if two-thirds of Americans can't name the three branches of government, I say that's a hollow standard. So back to science. There's a really critical distinction between teaching someone to think like a scientist versus learning science. And then on the learning science front, there's a big distinction between really learning science and superficially learning science. I'd much rather have kids learning how to think like a scientist. You know, I often advocate for every freshman in the United States to take a science course as a freshman that goes from subatomic particles to the galaxy, to the universe. The only goal of that course for freshmen is to get kids excited about science. What would happen if every 15-year-old in America thought science was totally cool? You know, we often have it wrong, right? We think that we'll cover the content, we'll meet these micro standards, and fingers crossed, fingers crossed, fingers crossed, engagement will kick in because they balance chemical equations and they memorize what a neutron is and they you know, study genomes or something, that they'll suddenly be really excited about science, except I don't see that, right? And, and so what should come first? Engagement, curiosity, excitement, and then making sure important standards are covered or exhaustive coverage of standards and then praying for engagement. And so, yes, on standards, but standards for what? And so I would say prioritize thinking like 
instead of memorizing material, then I'd say, pick your spots, pick the absolutely essential things you want. We need to understand how our democracy functioned. I would say that's essential. And I think everybody would agree with me. But if we're going to do it, let's really do it. Let's not sit around and say, hey, we gave it a run. That 25 minutes in the 10th grade should have done it. And it's just too bad that only one third of adults know the three branches of government. Say la vie, it didn't quite work, but maybe another worksheet or two will get us there. I mean, that's not the way it works, <laughs> right? Really push them to learn the stuff you think matters. The reason we don't do it is it's not data friendly. It's like when you decide the most important thing in education is to be able to rank kids against kids, teachers against teachers, schools against schools, districts against districts, states against states, and nations against nations, which we do a lot of in education. The only way you can rank order is standardized curriculum leading to the same test. You have to standardize everything. And so many are taking AP US history because that means they're studying the same curriculum for the same exam. When standardization comes in the front door of the school, joyful deep learning scoots out the back. And I think we've done a lot of scooting the right kind of learning out the back of our schools. And our teachers know it. And these policies that say we're gonna hold people accountable have been so poorly thought out that they are ill-serving kids and demoralizing teachers, and we need to just put our foot down and change that. Well, I think a part of the accountability part is that, in fact, this testing is not so much that it's demanding accountability from the teachers, or at least this is my personal perspective on this, is that it's demanding accountability from the students who are failing these tests and saying, you see, it's because you're stupid that you can't pass and therefore you don't deserve to have a good job. I think yeah. that's really what it boils down to in some, you know, because always there is some kid who does well on that, even, you know, with the same teacher. Right. Yeah, and so then yeah. they'll say it's not the teacher's fault because clearly it's just this one kid or these two kids or these 10 kids, however many there are. And it's their fault. But that doesn't, of course, take into the account where they live, whether they live in poverty, whether they live in the rural areas or in what other ways they don't have the same kind of bandwidth to actually take in this kind of education. If you want to call it that, you know, filling in, in the bubbles. And, and don't get me wrong. Do I think it's not important to make sure kids as they come through elementary school develop learning how to learn skills. Yes. You know, is it unacceptable for a kid to get to middle and high school reading at a second grade level? That is unacceptable. And can standardized tests used thoughtfully and diagnostically shine some light on where we're falling behind in that? I think they can. I tell the story in West Virginia. I went to this school, Dunbar Intermediate School. I was blown away. I mean, it's just like, whoa, this is a great place. But these kids were not in luxurious circumstances at home. It's a poor area. And that school, due to the brilliance of the West Virginia State Legislature, had to have a sign on the door because of their test scores that said, we've been evaluated as a D school. They weren't an F school, but just to make sure every kid that comes in, every parent that comes in, every teacher that comes in, every day you're going to see you're a D school. I know it's a great school. And I gave a talk to a bunch of educators and legislators in West Virginia about two years ago. And I begged, I said, legislators, some of you go visit Dunbar and then look at what you're doing to these schools. You owe it to your state to do that. And I checked back with Dunbar a year later. You know how many legislators had visited Dunbar? Well, you probably know. Zero. Yeah, zero. Right? Zero. <laughs> yeah. But we're tough. Aren't we great? Because we're getting tough on these schools. Oh, you know, you're doing so poorly because you're not doing as well as these super rich schools that are showered with resources. It's like, no, you know, that's just not okay. 
I suspect my tone reflects some degree of outrage. And if it doesn't, it should, because that's how I feel. We need to make sure we actually live up to this thing called the American dream and give every child in America a fair shot in life. And I think we're not doing that. It's all of our responsibility to just say, we've had it. We're not putting up with this anymore. You either tell us how you're going to support our schools, support our kids, give them fighting chances going forward, or we're voting you out of office, period. Well said. So here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What gives me hope is this, is that our kids are incredible. It bugs the bejesus out of me when somebody says, you know, as though this is the biggest of indictments. They say this may be the first generation in America's history where their kids don't have more financial success than their parents. And I say, you know what? I don't think they care. I think they look at their parents and say, you chase something that didn't in the end make you very happy. And so by and large, I find these kids have incredible values and they're bursting with creativity. And so to me, what gives me optimism and hope is we have dedicated teachers who know what to do if we let them. We have students itching to make their world better. I mean, imagine if we started producing out of our schools, whether it was out of high school, without the need for more formal, costly instruction, to give you a sense of purpose and focus for what you want to learn and to send you on your way. If we get that right, if we unleash 4 million kids a year who come out of our school one way or another to solve big, important problems in a creative, cost-effective way, and we trust and support our teachers, I think we can unleash so much potential, potential that today is squandered. And so that gives me energy to get up every morning, gives me hope and optimism about what's possible. But I do not take it as a given that we'll get this right. I think it can happen. And so that seems like a fight worth fighting. I think you're right. Well, thank you for believing that it's a fight worth having. And thank you for really putting this always in the forefront of our public discourse and making sure or that we think about at least, even if it's not going to come to pass in the short term, how education could be fantastic for all of our children. Thank you. Awesome. Well, you ask great questions. It's always terrific to talk to you. And thanks for all you're doing. You're making a huge contribution. Thank you. Thank you very much. My main takeaway is that we need to trust and support the main actors in education, teachers and students. Teachers who deliver innovation in the classroom to connect learning to the real world instead of relying on standardized tests, and students who already have great values and want to make a difference. My other takeaway is that we must break our obsession with college as being the only ticket to gainful employment. Transformative education at the high school level should equip our children with skills for life in their careers and in our democracy. This episode concludes our season. We'll be taking a short break and we'll be back in January with new episodes on systemic racism and structural inequality in America. Happy New Year and happy holidays. Stay healthy, wash your hands, and may 2021 be a better year for us all.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.